Uh, We're in Psalm 136 this morning as we continue uh, in our series. We've seen already uh, one, two, three, four different kinds of psalms. We looked uh, our very first week in the series at hymns. We looked the next week at songs of thanksgiving. We saw the week after that laments, and then last week, songs of confidence. Today, we turn our attention to uh, the songs of remembrance, those kinds of psalms uh, in uh, the Old Testament that that remind the people of Israel about things. Uh, specifically, the songs of remembrance are those psalms that cite historical, the historical provision and salvation of God for His people. They're meant to help God's people to remember and remember and not forget. I mean, that's a kind of double way of saying that, but it's important to remember and not forget the mighty works of the Lord in their life and in their history as a people. Psalm 136 is interesting because, as we'll see in just a moment, it's, a, it's kind of a call and response psalm that invites and includes all of the congregation to recall together the fact that the steadfast love of the Lord has carried them through their every trial and every success as a nation. We Christians, we living after uh, Christ's death and resurrection for our sins, we ought to look at these songs of remembrance in the Psalms in much the same way as our uh, forebears in the faith, the people of Israel did. But we can look at them with the added benefit of, of kind of looking forward through the Old Testament to the fulfillment of God's promises to the people of Israel in Christ's death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. We, can, we have an added sense of remembrance as we look at these songs, a, a fuller sense of uh, remembering all that God has done, particularly in Jesus. Hashtag TBT is a new thing on social media. It's not new. It's been around for a little while. TBT stands for Throwback Thursday, and it's kind of just an easy excuse for everyone to throw up old, maybe slightly embarrassing uh, baby pictures of themselves on social media so that everyone can like them and talk about how cute they were. Uh, it's, it's a way of sharing our photo albums uh, with everyone else that follows us or likes us or whatever the case may be on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We are, as a, just as a species, as people created in God's image, uh, people who like to tell stories to help us to remember what has happened in the past. Hashtag, T, hashtag TBT right? it helps to remind us of when we were cute little babies, uh, when gravity had not done all that it can uh, to us and age had not yet maybe taken its full, full effect in our lives. We like to remember things. We like to remember good days. We even, we even like to remember, uh, in some sense, bad days, um, uh, n- not to make ourselves feel sad, but, but just to uh, remembering key and, and significant events in our lives. In some way, we could, we could kind of look at the songs of remembrance in the Old Testament as kind of throwback songs, right? Songs that remind the people of Israel about good things that had happened Uh, in their history, about things that God had done, about maybe even struggles that they had and were able to, by God's help, persevere through. These songs of remembrance, as a kind of as a genre, as a collection of types of songs in the book of Psalms, uh, they don't have a specific form or sequence or order of, uh, of elements like some of the other songs do in Psalms. But they're always recognizable by how they cite specific historical events uh, in the course of the psalm, where, wherein God is working with his people, among his people, in saving ways. These songs of remembrance often uh, look kind of like songs of thanksgiving or, or even kind of like hymns because they often begin with the phrases, give thanks to the Lord, as we'll see in Psalm 136, or even praise the Lord, that one Hebrew word, hallelujah, all of you, give praise to the Lord. 
Maybe a better name for songs of remembrance would be songs of history. That might help us to remember what they're really about a little bit better. Or even better, songs of redemption history. Songs of how God has been working to redeem, to save his people. In your worship guide, down on the bottom of that first page in there, you have a list of other psalms, uh, songs of remembrance in the psalms that you can read this week to better acquaint yourself with them. They are Psalms uh, 78, 105, 106, 114, 135, the psalm we'll look at today, 136. And then there's even another one in uh, Exodus, a few books back towards the beginning of the Bible, in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. That's a song of remembrance that's called the Song of Moses. And it's a song that Moses sings and leads the people of Israel to sing after God has delivered them from, uh, from uh, slavery in Egypt and brought them safely through the passage of the Red Sea. So there are several psalms, uh, songs of remembrance that you can read this week to be better acquainted with them. I'd like us to turn our attention to one specific song of remembrance in Psalm 136. And if you're comfortably able, would you stand with me as we read this together this morning? Now, I'm going to do this a little bit differently. I said that this is a kind of a call and response psalm. And so every verse of the psalm starts with one line that is different from all the others. And the second line of every psalm is the same through all 26 psalms. And so I'm going to read the first line of the psalm. And you'll see uh, the verses on the screens behind me. And you read uh, the line that's there in bold, the second, uh, second line all together out loud. Let's read. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage. For his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel, his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state. For his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from all our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks 
to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. And God bless his people as they read their word. Be seated. There are three things in the course of this psalm that uh, I believe it teaches us to remember about God. And we're going to walk through these in order. So if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 136, keep them open as we work our way through God's word this morning. First of all, remember, God's eternal love infuses all he is and all he does. So first thing that the psalmist wants us to remember today, that God's eternal love infuses all he is and all he does. The psalmist wants us to remember in the first few verses and in the very last verse that God alone is God. He says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. In verse 26, he says, give thanks to the God of heaven. Have you ever noticed, friend, how easy it is to forget about God? When things in life are going well, we can get into the flow of things and just sort of assume God's presence because there doesn't appear to be any major needs to be met. The sky doesn't seem to be falling. We kind of just forget about our need for God, his presence in our lives. But likewise, even in times of difficulty and suffering, we can forget God amid the many crises and emergencies that we're juggling. We get so busy rushing to hospitals or or trying to figure out how to get bills paid or just figuring out the, the hard things in life that we forget about God's care and love for us. Verses 1 through 3 and verse 26 of this psalm, kind of like bookends, on this song, teach us above all to remember that God alone is God and that He is worthy of our active remembrance. He is worthy of being remembered in good times and in bad times. We are to remember that God's eternal love, as I said, infuses all that He is. The psalmist teaches us to remember that only God is good. Verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His goodness is a is a part of his very nature and character. It's part of his essence. It's not just a a way that he acts. It's a way that he is. God is genuinely and perfectly good in every way. There is no fault in his existence. There is no imperfection in his essence. God's goodness is extremely good, and we are to remember it. Every day, and his goodness is what drives his steadfast love toward us. So, how then could we ever, dear friends, even in the midst of remembering good dinners and good friends and good jobs, how could we ever forget the only good God? The psalmist says, Remember that God is, is good, it's part of who he is, his, his love fills his, his goodness. We're also to remember that the only God of the universe is sovereign. There's that word again, isn't it? Sovereign. We've encountered it a lot in the series in the Psalms, a constant reminder of who God is. That word sovereign means that God is independent and free. He has all power to do everything that he wishes. There is no one who can thwart his will. There is no one who can so influence God to do something uh, against his nature or against his will that, that he would do that thing. That's what God of gods and Lord of lords means. That, that there is no other God beside him. There is no one who rules over the universe like God or other than God. To say that God is God of gods and Lord of lords does not mean, as as some might assume, that there are other gods beside God, but rather a sort of figured way of of saying that he alone is God. He's the only one. If, If even there were such thing as other gods, he would still be God over them. And so if he's God over them, they cannot be gods, right? He alone is sovereign. He alone is independent and free. He alone has all power. 
God infuse, God, the, the eternal love of God infuses all that he is. He is good. He is sovereign. And the eternal love of God infuses all that he does. In verses 4 through 9, the psalmist reminds us that God is this wondrous creator. Verses 4 through 9 of the psalm recount in sort of a summary fashion God's creative artistry in the universe. He, he sums up kind of all of the created order by saying, uh, by calling the people to give thanks and praise to the one who does great wonders, who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread the earth out upon the waters, who made the great lights, the sun and the moon. Here's summarizing all of God's work in, in creation. You know, there's another summary statement in the Bible about God's work in creation that doesn't detail what he did on every single day, but sums it all up in one verse, and that's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The psalmist is doing the same thing here in these verses. He's reminding the congregation, the people of Israel, we who read this today, that God is a wondrous creator. Amen. The psalmist is not just retelling the order of creation here, but he's inviting the congregation He's inviting us to remember that all that we see and all that we know and all that we touch and smell and everything that we love is from God. And beyond that, as verse 4 says, he is the only one who does great wonders like he does in creation. There is no one else, there is no other being that is able to create the way that God is able to create things out of nothing. We can in our worship and ought to be reminded of the wonderful and miraculous work that God has done in the created world. Psalm 19.1 reminds us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 50 verse 6 says, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. There's a way in which this wonderful created world in which we live reminds us not only of the presence of God, of the power of God, but his wonder-working ability and his might. He is the creator, we are his creatures, and all that he has done in creation as a wonderful, powerful creator is out of love. Amen. It's all of His steadfast love endures forever. Friend, this morning, remember that God, in light of knowing that his eternal love infuses all that he is and does, remember that God is infinitely and lovingly powerful over all. Remember that this morning. Remind yourself of that this morning. Knowing that God is infinitely and lovingly powerful over all is not just the starting point of our understanding of who God is, but this is the foundational truth that we must return to time after time, day after day, as followers of Jesus, as we are constantly tempted to turn from him or to ignore him. We have to regularly remind ourselves that God is infinitely and lovingly powerful over all. So if you're not yet a Christian today, I hope that this will help you just a bit to know how Christians see and understand God. God is not to us just a, a best friend or a buddy or a genie in a bottle or a butler who stands ready to answer all of our wishes or make our dreams come true or take care of whatever we might need at any moment. That's not who God is. No, we confess together as followers of Jesus that God is the ultimate reality. He's the only unchanging being. He's the one upon whom all of our existence depends. He's the foundation for all, all truth. He's the source of all true knowledge. And he is the objective basis for how we interpret everything that we experience. All of our lives are, ought to be centered upon, revolve around, and, and flow through what we know about God as this loving, powerful, uh, uh, infinitely loving and powerful being. Amen. We Christians need to remind ourselves of this daily, maybe even moment by moment. And those who are not yet Christians need to know that this is the God that we serve. This is the God that we follow. This is the God that we worship. This one who is infinitely and lovingly powerful over all. Yeah. 
The psalmist then teaches us secondly in this psalm, in the second part of it, beginning in verse 10, to remember that God is a mighty and present redeemer. God is not just, a, 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 his, his love does not just infuse all that he is and all that he does, but he's also a mighty and a present redeemer. In verses 10 through, 3, or 10 through 15, excuse me, we're reminded that God is the mighty and present redeemer uh, of the people of Israel. The psalmist moves in these verses, 10 through 15, to summarize in a very short manner God's rescue, his redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He mentions in order the, the plagues, or he summarizes the plagues by mentioning the last and the greatest of them, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. He talks about the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea as it was parted in two, the destruction of Pharaoh's army there in the sea. The Exodus, as this event is called in the Bible, the deliverance from slavery, the people of Israel from Egypt, was the most important event in the life of the people of Israel. The Exodus is referred to more times in the Bible than any other single historical event. It's that important. I had an uh, Old Testament professor in seminary who said Exodus is the most important book of the Bible because it sets a pattern, it sets a, a paradigm for how God works in salvation, redeeming people who were slaves to be those who are his own possession, to be a people for his own glory. Many of you know the story of the Exodus. We don't need to review it all today. Even if you've only seen it through the film adaptation of the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, which gets shown on ABC every Easter, or the animated film, The Prince of Egypt, neither of which are, are terrible films. They get the basic contours of the Exodus story right. They don't tell it exactly the way that the Bible would, but we understand that Hollywood does what they do. But if all you know about the Exodus is from what you've seen in the Ten Commandments or The Prince of Egypt, you have a pretty good idea of the flow of that story. Well, what stands out to us here in these verses this morning is where the psalmist reminds Israel that when God rescued them from slavery, that he did so, and catch this phrase, it's an important one, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. This phrase is used a lot of times in the Old Testament of the Bible. And every time someone in the Bible refers to God's mighty hand, his strong hand, and his outstretched arm, they are almost always referring to the way in which God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. The idea there is that God led them out of slavery by the strength of his hand over against the will and the efforts of Pharaoh, who was considered a, a god in his own right by the people of Israel. Pharaoh, who was ultimately unable to hinder the Lord from doing what he would. God is mighty in his redemption. He is strong in his redemption, but he's also present. God is present with his people as he delivers them from Egypt, but he's also present with his people during that frustrating time of the wilderness wandering, verse 16 reminds us of this, to him who led his people through the wilderness. And by the time we get to verse 16, we here run into this event in the life of Israel that fell right on the heels of the exodus from Egypt. That is the, the, this wilderness wandering period. Numbers chapter 14, a book earlier in the Bible, tells us how as God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and toward the promised land of Canaan, that the people of Israel were afraid of the Canaanites, the people that lived in Canaan. And they refused to go into the land to conquer it. In fact, they all gathered around together and they said this. They said, we wish that we would have died in the land of Egypt or, or, or that we would have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? 
Our wives and our little ones would become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader other than Moses and go back to Egypt. For this disobedience, for this act of rebellion, this this act of the people of Israel to say, God, we don't trust that you'll actually get us into the promised land safely. God then sends his people into the wilderness of the desert of the Sinai Peninsula to wander until the whole rebellious generation died off and a new obedient generation of Israel would follow God's command to take the land. But even in the wilderness wandering, even during those 40 years of wandering around in the desert from campsite to campsite, God had a purpose and was with his people. Oftentimes it's maybe easy to assume that, that somehow God sent his people uh, into the wilderness as a, as a form of discipline to, to kind of uh, uh, reshape and, and reorient their priorities and their faith and that, and that he was absent from them for a time. But, but nothing could be further from the truth. Even in his discipline of his people, even in his correction of his people, God is intimately present. He's present with them in his his presence in the tabernacle, that tent of worship that they had. God leads his people through the wilderness period in a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, symbolizing his very real presence and, and very real leadership of his people through that period. God is a mighty redeemer. He redeems them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm from the slavery of Egypt. And he is present with his people even when they are rebellious against him. God also shows his mighty and present redeeming, saving work, as we see in verses 17 through 22, as a conquering king. So he's not just a deliverer who's present with his people, but he's a conquering king. Not only is God present and providing through the exodus and the wilderness, but also as Israel begins now uh, on the tail end of that wilderness wandering period to uh, to, to grow closer to the promised land and prepare to enter into it. Verses 17 through 22 recount the time near the end of that wilderness wandering period where Israel is about to uh, cross the Jordan from the east to the west, the Jordan River from the east to the west. And in doing so, they uh, approach two kings who are ruling in areas around there. Uh, You see their names mentioned here in verses 19 and 20. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. And the people of Israel go to these kings and they say, hey, listen, we're on our way to the land on the other side of the Jordan. Can you just give us safe passage through your land and and we'll be through here in no time at all. Well, instead of saying, yeah, no problem, come on through, Sihon and Og, these two kings of uh, of these pagan people on the eastern side of the Jordan River, say, no way, Jose, and instead they take up uh, uh, battle formations to go to war against the Israelites to keep them from passing through. Well, as Sihon and Og take up uh, battle positions, God leads and strengthens the people of Israel to fight against them. Uh, initially they wanted to pass peacefully through. They were not allowed to, but, uh, in battle against Sihon and Og, they defeat these two Kings. They take possession of their land as always happens in war. And then their land is given to the tribes of Israel, uh, uh, later on several years beyond this point. Here's the point of what the Psalmist is telling us in verses 17 through 22, that Israel were not the people who by their own power defeated the King of the Amorites and the King of Bashan. But it was God who struck them down. It was God who puts mighty kings in their place, like Sihon and Og. It is God who is a conquering king. He is a mighty redeemer. He's present with his people. He's a conquering king. So remember, Israel, says the psalmist, remember people, our God is the king who conquers. The king who conquers our enemies. 
Now, the point for us here today is not to look at God as a a political ruler who's going to overthrow and destroy whatever political party we aren't affiliated with. God is neither a Democrat nor a Republican. And if he were one or the other and destroying political parties was his thing, then you could bet that half of our congregation, one way or the other, would be on the bad end of that deal this morning. But praise God that that isn't who he is. He's not a geopolitical king. He's not a geopolitical force who just wants to set up uh, boundaries and, and borders for his own, own kingdom. Praise God that that isn't who he is, that his, his conquering is not so much focused on overcoming other geopolitical foes, other geopolitical rulers, but on overcoming our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. Know this this morning in this political election cycle that's only just begun to churn, these presidential candidates on both sides are already talking about who our greatest geopolitical threat is. Some say Russia, others say China. Anybody that says anything else just seems to be laughed at, but all of them are happy to argue of it, over it, to, to try to make their point. This is our greatest foe in the world. But don't be misled this morning, friend. Your greatest enemy is not the Communist Party of China nor the shirtless, horseback-riding former KGB agent, president of Russia. (laughs) Our greatest enemy is death. Death that we have earned for our sin and rejection of God. Death that threatens to separate us from God forever. But God has conquered that foe. His son Jesus has fulfilled the death sentence that we deserve for our sin, and he was raised from the dead, never to die again. And God has declared that you too can be set free from death and forgiven of sin if only you'll place your life's hope and confidence in Jesus, following him as Lord and conquering king. This morning, dear friends, remember that our rescue from sin requires a mighty, a divine redeemer. Our rescue from sin requires a divine redeemer. You know, life in sin is a lot like slavery. The Bible mentions this several times, especially in the New Testament. Jesus himself says so in John chapter 8, verse 34, that uh, he who is a sinner is a slave to sin, but if you're a slave to sin, only the Son of God can set you free. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes in his letter to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 6, uh, uh, about how we who walk in sin are a slave to sin. And once a slave to sin, one cannot free himself from it. Or if somebody sells themselves into slavery, they cannot the next day wake up and decide that they're free. Right? That's not how that works. If you give yourself over as a slave to a master, you, you are putting yourself at their beck and call. You're placing yourself at their will and their command to do whatever they tell you to do until such a time as your period of slavery is over or until someone can rescue you back. Here's the deal with sin. Once we begin to sin in our lives, and all of us are sinners, Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of, God, uh, short of the glory of God. Once we begin to sin, to actively rebel against God, we make ourselves, we sell ourselves into slavery to sin, into slavery to rebel against God every day, every moment of our life. We've sold ourselves into a debt that we cannot repay. We've said, God, I don't need you. I'd rather do this thing. And in doing that, we've given ourselves over to sin and over to death, which is the natural consequence of our rebellion against God. What we need as slaves to sin is a mighty redeemer, a divine redeemer, one who will set us free. And and this this is kind of how God frees us from sin and death by, by a sort of slave exchange, if you will, a ransom of sorts. 
We who have each one of us sold ourselves into slavery to sin, we've said, God, I don't need you. I can do life on my own just fine. We have made uh, 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 sin and rebellion against God our master, our, our authority in life. And yet God who created us in his image to know and love and worship him is not content to leave us in that sinful state. He's not content, nor does he desire, because his steadfast love endures forever, that we would be separated from him for all time. And so we who have sold ourselves into slavery now become the object of God's divine rescue plan. And here's how God rescues us from slavery. He takes on flesh as a human being. Man, we know as Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. God made flesh, fully God, fully man. Is born as a human being, lives a life without sin, never having once rebelled against God. He lives the life that we were meant to live but cannot do because we're constant sinners. And Jesus, when he was about 33 years old or so, was put to death unjustly on a cross by the Roman government at the beckoning of the religious leaders of his day. As Jesus hung there on the cross, dying as a man without sin, with, with no sin to die for, the Bible tells us that God looked on his son and, and transported all of the guilt, all of the weight, all of the debt of our sin uh, and, and, and our slavery to sin, transported that all onto Jesus. So that when he dies a death that he doesn't deserve, God looks on his death as one that is done in our place as a substitute. There's a slave exchange. Jesus comes and takes our place as, as the slave to sin, if you will, to pay the full debt of sin. He dies for your sins so that we can go free. As everyone who looks to Jesus and places faith and trust in him, believes that he's the only means of our rescue from sin, our only deliverance from slavery to sin, we have the promise of being redeemed, of being bought back by God out of sin. Here's the great thing about this, about this exchange, about this story, though, that Christ doesn't just make himself the object of, of the, the, the debt that we owe for sin and dying for it, but three days later, he rises from the dead. So as to say, not only have I paid the debt, but I've also defeated the debtor. Right? There's nothing you can do to stop me. He's not only paid off our sin debt, but he has defeated our greatest foe, which is death, the result of sin. Dear friend, if you don't know Christ this way today, I hope that this points you to the deep love of God that he has for you to send his only son Christ to give his life in your place for your sins. You who were a slave to sin and had no way out on your own have been made free as you place your faith in Jesus Christ and only in him who died in your place and was raised from the dead. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that God demonstrates his love for us this way, that while we were still sinners, while we were still slaves to sin, while we were still rebels against the king, uh, treasons, uh, uh, traitors against God's rightful reign in the universe, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows his love for you today, by sending his son to set you free, a divine redeemer, God in flesh, who dies for your sins and is raised again. Remember that God is a mighty and present redeemer. The psalmist remind, tells us, uh, finally teaches us to remember that God's steadfast love never fails. God's steadfast love never fails. This is an easy point to make because the psalmist makes it 26 times in the psalm. Every other line of the psalm is, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist wants us to remember this point. There's a reason that he's calling us to repeat it 26 times. 
As he begins to close his psalm in verses 23 through 25, he says three things about God. He says, it is he who remembered us in our lowest state. It is he who rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. The psalmist reminding us in these verses that God is a mindful provider for his people. Notice the kind of trajectory of this psalm. The psalmist begins very broad, almost from a cosmic perspective, talking about who God is and his work in the universe, in creating the universe. And then he he moves more specifically to speak about God's work with his people, Israel, how he redeemed them from slavery and brought them into the promised land. And And then he gets a little bit more broad to kind of all people and how God deals with all sorts of folks. God remembers those who are in their lowest state. And he rescues them from their foes. And he gives food to all flesh. The psalmist here reminding the congregation that God is a mindful provider for his people. In remembering the lowest state of his people, we see this, that God's remembering, as we've talked before, it has nothing to do with his having forgotten his people or, 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 or anything along those lines. God is all-knowing. He's eternal. There's nothing he does not know and nothing that he can forget. But when the scripture speaks about God remembering his people, what it's telling us is that God is acting with covenant faithfulness, with covenant love toward his people in a manner that he's done so in the past. God is acting in a saving, loving way toward his people uh, as is his pattern to do. The psalmist says he rescued us from our foes. Literally understood, this verse says from its original language, he has torn our enemy's yoke off our back. Man, that's a cool picture. A beautiful image of the deliverance from the burden and oppression and slavery that we have in sin. Removed from us. That yoke of our enemies torn off our backs by this mighty God who is a mindful provider. And he gives food to all flesh. That verse seems a little bit out of place. We've been talking so much about what God has been doing for the people of Israel and so on and so forth. And then there's just this line thrown in. He gives food to all flesh. What does that mean? It means that God provides for all those that he has created and by his steadfast love is caring for. God cares for you. This phrase, he gives food to all flesh, is not just specifically about putting food in bellies, but it's about God's ongoing, sustaining work in the life of every human being. God really cares about you. God really loves you. God is really concerned for your best interests. He provides food to all flesh. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, that, that passage in uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he tells the people that he's preaching to not to be anxious about what they'll eat or what they'll wear or even about their own life. Because as we look around, we see that God dresses the lilies of the field in more greater splendor than King Solomon, maybe the wealthiest man ever to uh, walk the earth. And God cares for the birds of the air. He feeds them and provides nests for them. The, the, The flowers of the field and the birds of the air that God cares about so much. And then Jesus says, what about you? Do you not think that God cares all that much and more for you? Of course he does. He says, so seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If God can take care of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, how much more then will he care for the crowning work of his creation? You, dear friend, made in his image. Remember that God's a mindful provider. And finally, that in his steadfast love, remember that his love is eternal. This is the point that's repeated to us 26 times in this psalm. Remember that God's love is eternal. This is probably the most important point of this psalm today. And so if you hear nothing else or remember nothing else from this sermon today, remember this, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. 
This is the constant refrain that we read 26 times. His steadfast love endures forever. It's not there 26 times to drive us crazy. But to ensure that we say enough times to ourselves and out loud the most important thing we can remember about God and His work in our lives. My youth pastor, when I was, uh, when I was in youth, about a million and a half years ago, he's still alive, so he's even older than me. He used to always remind, he used to always ask us a question as we were memorizing scripture or talking about different spiritual truths all along the way from, from the Bible. Whatever he, he would always ask us, how do you remember? And our answer was repetition, repetition, repetition. How is it that we are to remember that the steadfast love of the, door, of the Lord endures forever? Repetition, repetition, repetition. The reason the psalmist leads us to sing 26 times the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever is because we need to hear it 26 times to really understand it, to let it stew in our minds and in our hearts and to change how we see the world and live in response to God, to change how we see how God has acted in our lives leading up to this point. It's not there to drive you crazy. It's there to drive you to the love of God. God's love exists for all eternity. His love has no beginning and his love has no end. His love permeates everything that he is and everything that he does. His love is the thread that holds together every high moment and every low moment of your life into one rich tapestry of his grace and work to save you from sin. As we look at our lives, we who know Christ, we we can go many years back to see maybe times before we knew Jesus or even after we began to follow Jesus, times that were really, really good and we see the, the loving hand of God at work in all of that stuff. And then, and then we, even who know Christ, who have the hope of salvation, we can look back at our lives and see the terrible things that have happened in our lives. Sickness, death, abuse, hurt, pain at the hands of others. And we can even, because we know that God's steadfast love endures forever, we can see the way that God has woven his love even through those difficult times of our lives. And we one day, as we are raised from the dead with Christ, never to die again, we can look back at the whole course of our lives to, to see not just those, these individual moments where God was good or God showed up or God seemed loving, but we can look back on the whole of our lives as one beautiful, rich tapestry that, that only, perspective, only the perspective of eternity will allow us to see how God's love is just woven together every single moment of our lives to illustrate his constant care for us. It's what he does for each and every one of us who are following him. And dear friend, if you don't know Christ yet today, he's doing the same in your life. You may not believe in God. You may not have faith in Jesus. You may struggle to understand how you can or what God is doing. Let me just say this to you now. That whether you recognize it or not, whether you're mindful of it or not, God is working his eternal love for his purposes in your life today. God has brought you to this place, to this room, to this text today to say, my steadfast love for you endures forever. I'm a mighty redeemer who who can save you from sin. I'm a conquering king who has defeated your greatest enemy. I'm a wondrous creator. Look at my love for you in the universe that I have made for you to live in. I am the good and sovereign God who has set his eyes and his heart on you. Trust me. God has been working every moment of your life to this day, dear friend, to to trust Jesus, to place your faith in the Son of God who gave his life for you and was raised from the dead, to bring you to a place where you can confidently declare like Theo did this morning, my life, it belongs to Jesus. 
He's my Savior, and every day of my life is going to be lived in obedience to Him because we know that His steadfast love for us never fails and has brought us to this point. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said this about this constant refrain. He said, we shall have this repeated in every verse of this song 26 times, but not once too often. It is the sweetest stanza that a man can sing. What joy that there is in mercy. Mercy with God. Enduring mercy. Mercy enduring forever. We are ever needing it, ever trying it, ever praying for it, and ever receiving it. Therefore, let us forever sing of it. Christian today, remind yourself to remember and not forget. I know that's repetitive. I meant it. Remind yourself to remember and not forget that God's love drives all that he does. That God's steadfast love is weaving its way through your life to show to you and to all the watching world how great and loving and mighty this God is. Friend, if you don't know Jesus this way, if you don't know this God this way as a mighty redeemer, don't leave here this morning without knowing him, I pray. If you're a friend or a guest of someone who uh, you came with here and worshiped this morning, would you ask them today as we dismiss here in a few moments, how can I know Jesus this way? How can I know this God whose steadfast love endures forever? Ask your friend, ask your family member, whoever it was that you came with this morning, ask them, how can I know this God? I want to, I need to, I need a redeemer. Listen to the voice of God in your heart even now as he's calling you to place your faith in him. Him whose steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together.